not stumble in a matter of law and cause my colleagues to rejoice over us. And may we not say regarding something which is divine, that, that it is and not regarding something which is tabor, that it is tamed. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law, and we rejoice over them. For Hashem grants wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Unveil my eyes, unveil our eyes, that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Well done. Amen. That's a good prayer to start. I think study. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Cool stuff there. And he did sound cool doing it. He did. He did. I hope so. If we're not on three, it's a problem, huh? All right, so let's uh, let's walk through this here. Uh, Magdalene is how you say Mary Magdalene, not Mary Magdalene. So her name comes from Dole. Right? It's not a name. It's a, it's a surname referencing where she lived. That's right. The tower. The tower, which is named for a tower, which is actually also a city that you can still visit in the Galilee. There you go. So, that first miracle coming the sea there that we read in Luke 8, uh, what, was, what was the master's question to those guys? They get all freaked out. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? I mean, it, it makes sense, right? If you are with the king of the universe, if you're with the visible expression of the creator, why would you be concerned? There's a little bit of wind, wind. Now I say that standing here in Charlotte, North Carolina, on hardwood floors with no problems, but uh, that's the bottom line. So when we go across the uh, sea there, we've got two violent non-Jewish men, and uh, what was the uh, what was the bottom line for the folks? What he healed them for him. Depends on which version you're reading. You're a Greek guy, so on that, there's only one gospel that mentions two. Yeah. It so happens that the one guy in the other ones is possessed by many demons. A legion, in fact. Is it possible that there's like a Greek thing going on there where there's really only one, and they got confused, the translators got confused about this too? It's possible. I thought about that, and I pulled my Greek New Testament off the shelf to see what the various, uh, you know, Manuscripts were saying and all that. I just never got a chance to look at it. But that was my first thought: was we've just got a great thing going. But hey, like with the angels, that's two. If there's two, there's at least one. Well, that's true. We're definitely not inaccurate. It's just um, my wife pointed out that it was kind of kind of weird for someone to go. Oh yeah, it was another like crazy naked demon guy there. I almost forgot about that. Yeah, it was killing everybody. Yeah, yeah, breaking chains. Yeah, I get it. So I can't, I can't help with that. Um, but it could be. When, when the master offered to stay and spend some time with him, as he 
he had done it to Samaritan village. You got a different response here. What was the response? No, no, no. In the garrison. They're a little freaked out. Freaked out. They they wanted to leave. Right? Right. So, I I thought I was pointing. Presumably, they think. I mean, there's there's a couple, I guess, plausible explanations for their response. One is because he's exhibiting control of the demons, they think he's a greater demon. This is just a bigger guy. Right. We didn't want these guys. Right. So so that's, that's one explanation. The other explanation is it was just so weird. It just kind of freaked him all out. Really right. tough. Yeah. Which um, leads you to believe how long this guy or guys were wreaking havoc down by the beach. Right? Well, no, we don't go there at all. Thank you. 
extensively about the Gospels, at least some of them, it is possible that there is a thing out of it and say, okay, this really happened, but the point, the reason why this is in the, the Torah is because God's really trying to also say this. Right. And this particular incident really seems to be, like my dad described it as a shot across the bow. Uh, Messiah stepping into Roman territory, he cast out a legion of demons, which is not a word that's used by mistake. Right. He cast them into pigs, which is also a derogatory term used for Romans. And he does it in an well, area. Probably also that herd of pigs was probably also uh, sustenance for the legion, oh, right? For the actual legion. So, right. and then on top of all of that, he actually sends a convert back there, which is weird because we never see this guy again. All of the other people that like kind of like, oh, pick, pick me, pick me. Either Yeshua kind of discourages or takes them with him, or he tells them, "Don't tell anybody." This is one of the only ones where he sends him back to his hometown, and says, tell everybody you can. That's exactly right. He wouldn't let him come with him. Right. It's an amazing thing. I, I agree with everything you said. He's stepping into Gentile territory, and he's definitely acting differently with, with the folks he's interacting with, with, with whom he's interacting. And they're reacting differently to him than the Jews did. One, what's... Uh, that was, I don't was I was going to say. But just to follow up on point that he's just made. It's a dovetail. A dovetail, yes. Um, is the fact that he tells the non-Jew to go back to his non-Jewish community 
and tell everyone you see what God has done for you. Yes. But when he's in Israel among the Jews, Mom's the word. do not say a thing. Yeah. Hmm. That is extremely important to take note of. Why do you think that is? What would the Jews see or hear with a report like this? That the non-Jews would not. The fulfillment of prophecy. Yeah. This, wait, this sounds like the Messiah. Right. Right. Rather than a non-Jew who would go, wow, impressive. But the thought of scriptures and the Tanakh would not come to their mind because they didn't know the Tanakh. Good. Whew. Don't jump in all the time like this, okay? Just let them get a chance to speak on that side of the room. <laughs> all right. Yairus. I say Yairos. I beg your pardon. Yairos and his daughter is the next miracle. What, what healed the girl? Uh, his faith. Okay. No, his faith. His faith. She's laying on the bed, ready to die. His faith healed the girl. Oh, sorry, that's that's the girl who touched the... That's the, that's the woman. Yeah, no, we're coming up to that. And I have an interesting theory on both on the on both the daughter and the daughter and the mo- and the uh, woman. So you want to wait until the woman and then yeah. we'll do, get yeah, to yeah. Okay, I'm I want to hear. I want to hear. Okay. Um, what was the exhortation? What did he say to Yairus? He had heard he's dead. She's dead. Sent the the. Messenger comes up, says, "Don't need to trouble the master anymore." She's dead. No, no, she's just sleeping. Exactly. And then Jesus comes in to a room with a bunch of mourning people, and when Jesus said, "She is not dead, uh, she's sleeping," they just they laughed. Yep. I just want to make a point to you, younger guys: laughing at the Messiah, laughing at the Creator of the universe, is never a good choice. Write that down. Take that to your grave. Or laughing, laughing when someone's just died. Also bad. Very also bad. Yes. He says she's sleeping. We get a similar reference with Lazarus in the book of John, mm-hmm. which we haven't read that yet. But it's right, right, right. It's coming. Um, it's next week. The, um, what's really interesting about that, though, is that in our modern, because of our Christianity has influenced our culture so much, the idea that they sleep the sleep of death is part of what we think of. But that's actually not a Christian concept. Right. It's extremely Jewish. Judaism teaches that sleep is a teeny taste of death. And in fact, every morning you wake up, you thank God for returning your soul. Because, because you died last night. had essentially died. <laughs> and actually, if you think about it, this is a really um, appropriate way of describing death. Because if we believe in the resurrection, which we do, that means that no death is permanent. It's all really just either a long sleep or a short sleep, depending on the situation. No death in this present world. Right, right. Yes, I guess you know. So the comment about laughter. Yeah. Um, So I have a slightly different take. Okay, so this guy is like two minutes, maybe two and a half minutes behind me, twice now. 
No pressure. Let's go. Okay. So, in this past week's Torah portion, right, by your eye, we have an angel who shows up at Abraham's tent, and he makes an announcement, and he says, he says to Abraham, your wife is going to conceive. She overhears the conversation, and she laughs. It's a cynical laugh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I'm old. He's old. Yeah. Like, that's really going to happen. <laughs> She's mocking yeah. mm -hmm. the, uh, the angel. The message from Hashem. Yes. Okay. One year later, the word comes to pass, and now she's laughing, and she's and her laughter is a laughter of joy. Immense joy. Sure. And Hence, his name I, is Yitzach, which means laughter. laughter. And Yitzach is a picture of the Messiah. Amen. So there's a. A really good lesson here like that it. there are people will mock Messiah. Yeah, okay, he's Messiah. Yeah, right. Uh huh. He's he's divine. Yeah, okay, right. He's this. He's not that. Or whatever. They're gonna they're gonna laugh in a cynical laugh, but one day. They will laugh with immense joy when they realize who the Messiah really is and what he's done. Amen. That's so, good. laughing in connection with Messiah is actually Not a, a deeper, it's a kind of a deeper, a deeper thing. thing. Yeah. Right, so, what did he do? What's the Hebrew word for what he did to take laughter in the apostolic scriptures and go, oh, wait a second, that's a hint for this. In the Tanakh, what's that word called? Two, one, three. Remez. 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 <laughs> okay, good, good. You got to count. Uh, well, there were just because stuff that just keeps popping out at me, but uh, along the lines of we were having that discussion before, it's so interesting that it keeps mentioning, at least in the two accounts, that he says to give her something to eat. Yeah. Any, any thoughts on that? I, I was just like, that, that sounded so weird. Like, of all the things, it's like, you were dead and now you're alive. It's like, give her something to eat. Like, yeah. It's so interesting. Although you you think it's you, interesting that the very bread of life well, I was going to say commands a, them yeah. to give her bread. Perhaps to, a yeah, hearkening okay. to the resurrection could be, when the could bread be, of life would could be maybe. that he knew she was sick for a period of time and hadn't eaten in a while. Yeah, Shulianna's theory was it was proof that she was physically alive since and she's not eaten. Just a ghost. Nice, because that happens when he's resurrected. See, I'm flesh and bone, right. not flesh and blood, which we would normally say, but flesh and bone. Touch me, you can see that. Give me something to eat. And I'll eat. So, okay. not yeah. bad. Could be either one. I like it. I like yeah. it. Yeah. The other thing was, uh, I thought it was kind of interesting that in, I think it's the Luke account. Um, so he he kind of lays out the instructions of how she's going to be healed, which is like different than some of the other times where he says like all all you have to do is believe and she'll be made well. So he's like he's kind of instructing, but then it's after this. Where it, it, that's when in chapter nine of Luke it says like then he called all his disciples together and gave them the power and authority to 
cast out demons and to cure diseases, almost like like it was it was almost an instructional miracle sure. in a way because it's after that mm-hmm. that okay. the disciples then pick up there. I would bring you also to when they come off the mountain, which is the next week's class. Um, is if you recall, moving ahead. Sorry, stand by. They come down off the mountain. James, Peter, James, and John, right? The transfiguration deal. He come down off the mountain, and in all the accounts, this father rushes up to him and says, hey, can you help my son? While you're up there on the mountain, the rest of these jokers couldn't help him. Can you? And he did. And he, they later pull him aside and go, how come we couldn't do that? And there was a reason. We'll get into that next week. It's good. It's good. All right, we got to keep moving here. How many disciples did he uh, did he have with him? Twelve. He had three. No, that was on the mountain. Oh, Back where okay. we're at. in the room, but twelve total. Yeah, he had twelve. Twelve. How old was uh, Yaris's daughter? Twelve. twelve. How long had the woman been bleeding? Twelve. Twelve. Wow. That's the link I was talking about. It's cool, isn't it? It's cool. So. I left it wide open for Greg. I figure it's got to be some numerology thing, right? So what do you got? You got anything? No. I, I don't well, have anything, but I did see the same connection. I yeah. There is something there. It's, it's shocking. But. Right? Because um, the writers go out of their way. Right. To make sure that yeah. you see that. And here we are, non-Jews going, darn, aren't there any Jews we can ask? But the only thing that I could think of was that the 12 years was intentionally parallel because there's another connection between these two miracles. That Which two miracles? The woman who's bleeding and the girl who's dead. Okay. The connection is that both forms are transmittable in purity. Like if you go into Leviticus... All right, hang on. Does everybody understand where he's talking about transmittable impurity? Tameh and Tahor. Tameh and Tahor, which clean we talked about, right? Clean usually translated... So, most of the time, if I'm unclean because I I touched a, uh, even better, I ate something that was unclean. If I touch you, do you get unclean? Yes. No. No. But in this case, in these two cases, you will. Go ahead. They're two of the only ones. So in in the Tanakh and Torah, um, the concept of ritual impurity is probably the better way to translate that. Is that this is kind of beyond our understanding? Come on. There are certain things that render your uh, ability to approach God physically prohibited. So you can't go into the temple or the tabernacle if you've done certain things, unless you've gone through a cleansing process. And we we see in the Yom Kippur ritual once a year. The high priest is taking on and doing a, a, a sacrifice for himself and his own family, and then for the, all, the people of Israel, and then for the tabernacle or temple area itself, because someone may have come in in this state of impurity of which you speak unknowingly. And so there are. But this was different. But so hang on, how there's this different, different levels. There's different levels. And the highest level are there are three types one is leprosy. What do you call leprosy? It's zarat in Hebrew. Um, death. Touching and, a dead body or yes, being in a, in a house they, when he dies. And nida or 
feminine bleeding. Some type so of bleeding. Those, or male as well. There's actually another yeah. that also yeah. is there. Yeah. So those three are the most intense. What's really interesting... What's is, different about them? What's unique about those is that they, they can translate from one person to another. So if I were to have leprosy, let's say, and I touched you, now you're unclean too. See, most of the things, as you just pointed out, don't transmit. It just affects you. Exactly. But these are the three categories that actually pass from one to the other. And when it comes to like death, for example, just having a dead body in the room with you makes you unclean. Exactly right. So when Yeshua walks into the house where this girl is dead, instantly he's rendered unclean, technically. It's not a sin. Right. Didn't it's we already have a... the widow name? Wasn't that last week? Yeah. What did he do? He touched the kid. He touched the coffin. coffin. Yeah. And it stopped the whole... It's not a parade. What do you call it? Procession. Procession. I like that. Yeah. She so stopped the profession. Procession. And the kid sits up. But when he touched that coffin, unclean. And so that was and major unclean. But what's significant about this story is that it's transmittable uncleanness normally. I touch you, you become unclean. This is working in almost in reverse. Now I'm not saying Yeshua probably didn't become unclean as well because he most likely did. But what's significant is that he's touching people and the uncleanness is leaving them. With the reason that they're being unclean is going away. So what we're seeing here, I believe, the 12 years thing is is trying to draw the connection to make you realize, oh, these two are a similar category. There's a parallel here. What we're saying is that unlike, it's like it's a kind of a miracle to say that not only can Yeshua heal people, raise people from the dead, but he's also able to actually, um, in a sense, reverse this unclean state. I like it. Which is significant. It's a big deal. I like it. Connected to that, though, is... So while there are certainly certain um, certain states of Tame that do transfer, there's also the idea of sanctity that transfers. So, for example, anything that touches the altar yeah. is now holy. Absolutely. Even even the fire pans that Korah and his rebellious ones right. held. Exactly. Boom. We gotta gotta gather those up. So so there is there is a reverse of, of sanctity transferring. So you could view this as his his being Yeshua's sanctity as Mashiach transferred to her, yeah. resulting I like in healing. That. That's like cool. maybe he took on an uncleanness the other way. Yeah. But and, and I think you see that with the woman with the issue of blood, right? When he says virtue has gone out, out of me. me. Yeah. It's it's like this his sanctity has transferred. There was there was a Star Trek episode about that. So we need to talk about that. Great. So just to add on or to that, that's a fantastic point about the connection of the two the two miracles. And the connection that I was thinking about to the disciples is again in Luke nine, his whole point right after he deals with these two things that are like transmittable impurities yes. is he says he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So in my mind, it's like the whole point of the 12 connection is to really demonstrate to the disciples that there are no categories off limits where you would, no, uh, no, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to go there because I then like I won't that. be able to hang out at the no. temple or yeah, anything yeah. like that. It's like, no, no, no. You, you go into every situation. You got both sides now. Right, right. Because, That's good. I, mean, I like that. Because he sets a precedent uh, several times by 
by touching lepers and touching dead people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that was just not, simply not done. Right. You know? and, well, what did the leper or the woman with the bleeding, what were they supposed to do? Unclean. They're supposed to announce. They have to announce, right? They have to cover their upper lip, and they have to proclaim that they are unclean or to may. I think that's you. Nothing came in here. Really? Oh. Oh. There there it is. It It didn't line up. One zero one nine five nine. Okay, so. Touch a dead body to men. Yes? Did Yeshua touch a dead body? No. No. Did you touch a coffin last week? Yeah. Okay. Unclean. That was the widow Nain's son. The widow from Nain's son, right? Yes. He touched a coffin. Yes. Now he's unclean, yes? Yes. Yes. Ashes of red heifer, seven days. Eight days, eight days, three and eight, right? Three and eight, eight days. So what's the proof that he touched the dead body? Normally it's the dead body. But if there is no dead body, (laughs) is he still telling it? No. Maybe, like Greg was talking about, Mr. Upton was talking about, the tame impurity came to him and the virtue went to the kid and raised him. Maybe? Well, because it's one of the interesting things about that whole setup is um, Christianity, we thought we traditionally looked at this as almost like it's like a, a health issue. Or it's, not. or it's nothing to even talk about because it doesn't apply anymore. Right, but it's not. And I, in fact, actually, the whole concept of tame and tahor, clean and unclean, seems to be spiritualism in crazy mystical places that we really don't even totally understand. Right, right. And so it's, I mean, you could even ask the question, does, is Yeshua healing them and resulting in their uncleanness leaving? Or is he driving the uncleanness out and that's making them well? I mean... Or, or like I just said, and I think Greg said, he's taking the uncleanness and giving them to whore. Right. So almost like in in, 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 a, some trans, in, a, in the transporter room, you know, Kirk's doubled is being Beat sent over Scotty. to Spock, and you know, yeah, you know. But, so we have a question here along those lines from Mary Brown, watching with Tom. Uh, she asks, "How can God be unclean ever, and therefore how could Yeshua?" That's the question. Right. So we know for sure that Yeshua was unclean. We know. We assume. No, we know. In fact, next week I can demonstrate that he went up to the temple literally a week ahead of time, before. Oh, okay. So we can make the assumption, as I said last week, that because he became unclean in performing this miracle, he would then have to go through this ritual and would have to get there a week early. And sure enough, he goes a week early so that he can get that done, presumably. But while he's God as I think we discussed last week, he reduced himself and gave up some of his attributes as God when he became man. It's obvious he's not omniscient. Well, he dies. I mean, a biggie too. <laughs> okay, I like that one. Yes, Todd. 
I know at childbirth the mother becomes unclean. For yeah, is the child also unclean? The child is not, but the child has to be circumcised, or at least you have to. uh, But that isn't. Wouldn't there be other normal times where you would just be unclean? Oh yeah, all the time. All the time. Oh right. You know, you've got you know some kind of. there's lots of but, reasons but, why it can happen. The like, point yeah. is that, but the point though is that <laughs> he, yeah, well, he the other great point to say that like it's not a sin. You know, a woman gives birth to a child. She didn't sin by giving birth to a child. Correct. In fact, she's unclean because there's a spiritual reality that's going on, but it's different from sin. So there's no reason why Yeshua can't be unclean. There's no theological reason why exactly. that's a problem. Exactly. Right? And in fact, he may have been un- become unclean as any Jewish man would in Israel for other reasons. Like walking through a cemetery. Right. So, I mean, he would be unclean because the Torah is true. Right? Because otherwise you, you have to say the Torah is no longer applicable. Right. right? Which he makes clear is Which very much says in, in It's play. not the case. It is exactly. applicable. Good. I like that. And, not too, and then I think, you know, the other... The other statement from last week, which sometimes is a little controversial for people, but my view is he wasn't God when he was on the earth because he took off, he took off his godliness so that he could be man. And I, I, everybody, everybody's like, (gasps) yeah, you're right. You know, we we all kind of cringe at that. I hear where you're coming from. I got you. I hear where you're coming from. I'm going to respectfully. Disagree only because at the end of his life, his interaction, as we'll see later in a couple of weeks, uh, with Pilate makes it clear. He is a king. He's not of this world. He can call upon his father and so on. It seems that there's another aspect of him that he knows still exists. Don't you know that I could... And the antimatter and matter come together, and man, you've been wiped. You, you know, so there's something there, but I, I hear where you're coming from. Yeah. Go ahead. What's the name? I forgot. Joshua. Joshua. But he you goes brought up. Fred. You brought up the fact that a lot of the Christianity looks at it as mm-hmm. health issues. But you know, um, let's let's go. We spiritualize a lot of things. Let's go back to when all those things you look at, they're very contagious. And I think a lot, you know, God has a purpose in trying to keep us from catching diseases. Now, he tells the Israelites, when they leave Egypt, keep my commandments and eat clean things, basically, so that you will not receive the same diseases. None of these diseases. As the Egyptians. No, it's not to minimize the benefits of them, only to simply say that I think that the mistake is to focus on it as strictly a physical thing. Sure. Because it does seem to be deeper than that. Yeah, and and of course we know that many of these these things are not contagious. If you touch a dead body, there's no contagion there. If you people do that all the all the time, right? You got people working in funeral homes touching. Sure, exactly. If if a woman is in nida, there's there's no problem with some other woman being in nida because she touched you know. It just, you know. Yeah, but I think the hygiene and, and the knowledge of, of the body and the, it has grown to a level that's a lot higher than it was back then. That's true. And I think it, it seems when we, get, we, we do the, the, the calendar, yeah. get to the Black Plague, 
And the Jews don't die. Right. And the reason why they don't die is because they follow. They're keeping the commandments. Right. And they're no protected question. by yeah. God's hand. Now, no so, you know, it, it does have a lot of spiritual meaning, but we live in a concrete world. We remain in this world, and we go back to the sleeping. And that's a great metaphor for death. And, you know, Yeshua says that the time will come when all those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth will hear the voice and rise. And, you know, to believe anything else that death is actually to die and live and sleep in the earth, anything else than that is really not biblical. Mm. So I think that's um, a great metaphor for what the true state of the dead is. I think it's a metaphor for sure, but I do know that men rot, bodies rot. No question about it. Thus you so, were made from dust, and yeah, thus you shall yeah, return. I, I, I want to be careful that we don't spiritualize it and say it's spiritual, therefore we don't have to take it physically. Because they were commanded, and the Torah is clear. It was a physical thing. If he touched that dead body, he is unclean. He needs the ashes of the red heifer. Why? Because God said so. Why? So they could draw near to the physical expression of God in the temple. Good. This did is we, a great discussion, guys. Did we talk about it here, about how when a person dies, their blood is useless almost right away? We didn't talk about that here. Because uh, that's another interesting thing. The life is but in the blood. True. The life you is in the blood, and when the guy dies... draw blood from somebody that just died and put it into a patient to save their life, but it doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah. That's good. Because the blood is unclean. That's right. Well... <laughs> The blood is no longer efficacious. Look it up. All right, so bottom of page 23. What other man in Scripture was asleep in a boat and oblivious during a terrible storm? Caleb. Jonah. It was. Why yes. is that significant? Because that's the sign. That's the only sign that he was willing to give. And I think he gave it more than once. We'll see if he gives it again. Did you notice... Okay, have you, you ever played the game, what's wrong with this picture? And you look at one picture, and you look at another picture, and it's not the same, but this guy's wearing a red hat, you know? That's okay. it. I compare it, what's the so, difference? What's, what's wrong with this picture? Yeshua's asleep, there's a big storm in a boat, there's, there's people sailing the boat, they freak out, he wakes up, he comes out, Jonah does the exact same thing. But what happens next? Jonah says, yeah, so my God's mad at me because I ran away from him, throw me over the sea, overboard, and the storm will stop. Yeshua looks at the waves and says, shh, be still, and he stopped. The difference is, in my mind, Jonah is a prophet on behalf of God. Yes. But Yeshua is obviously utilizing God-like powers right. to stop it on his own. Yeah. He's, not, he's not an intermediary. There's no, like, hang on, hang on just a second. Let me talk to the Father real quick. I think, I think he's got a miracle for us. He just immediately, exactly he can right. stop it on his own. And, and I think that's the whole idea of doing it, right? He's, he's playing it back, Ramez, to Jonah. You bet. You bet. You know what's interesting? The Shua says, everything that I've done, you can do also, and even more. That's right. I don't know. I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The other significant element to this, my dad points out, is that the, the water is oftentimes linked to death. Yeah, hey. So we see that already with the walking in the water, people freak out, think he's a ghost. So when Yeshua effectively silences the waves, there is also a spiritual significance to that as well. It's not just that he's able to control nature, but he's controlling the scariest part of nature, really. Yes. Yeah. 
And I think it would be remiss of us to, to go through this, this discussion of this stormy time I got you, on the sea and not recognize what did these guys in the boat do for a living? <laughs> they fished. Where did they fish? On that particular On that particular water. body of water. Every day or night, all day or night long. By the way, they didn't fish the way we fish now. They threw, the line. They, they threw nets. They threw nets. Water. Secondly, they mostly fished at night, and you'll see that later on as we get towards the end of the Gospels. Oh, we've been out all night long. But if you want me to throw the net on the other side, okay. So we have some professional fishermen who are living and getting their living on this body of water. And the storm's so bad that they're freaking out that they're going to drown? Must have been a pretty bad storm. I got you, then I got you, then he's just scratching his head. I, this, uh, this always reminds me. You're going to have to speak up because oh. everybody's complaining. They, they can't hear anybody with the name Greg. <laughs> I don't know what's up with that. Brett, try to hold it down. Buddy. This, uh, this particular passage about calming the wind and the waves, like they say, who can this be that even like the wind and waves obey him? It always reminds me of Colossians where it says like all things were created for him Messiah. And for him and for him, yeah. yeah, like I mean that's just I think that's a, it's a really cool thing to think well, about. Well, it shows us that maybe these waves were made specifically for him. It's like this blind guy. Who sent him or his parents that he should be born blind? Neither one. But that the power of God might be shown through him. Maybe right. that's why the waves showed up. Right. Could be. I like it. I like it. Great. To me the the, the key remez for me is back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. There was chaos. Tohu yeah. vavohu? Yes. And the spirit of Elohim, whom the sages say is the spirit of Mashiach, hovered over the waters. You brought this okay. up two weeks ago and I had to hold off until this time. So you, it, so in this instance, you see him bringing calm to the chaos, and then in another instance, you actually see him hovering over, over the water, exactly. right? Which is exactly what the sages understood verse two of Genesis chapter one to be a, an illusion. That's, right. that's for, right, and that's why you weren't allowed to study that on a regular basis, lest you. Blaspheme God Himself. You can probably tie almost every day of creation back to something that Yeshua did. That's like a homework that problem. You might write that down. Okay. Something that's like almost against nature, deliberately to show His His power or dominion over it. Well, yeah, and that's like. actually important because um, I remember speaking with a. Uh, um, a Jewish assistant to a rabbi. He was working with like a, a Jewish religious center, and um, he was commenting how the Exodus story is significant because God um, reverses the course of nature. God does open miracles that that go against nature. Typically, I mean, if you think about it, all of nature is really just a pattern of miracles. But typically, uh, God doesn't normally 
openly violate the rules of nature for a miracle. It's a special circumstance when sure. that occurs. Sure. So for Yeshua to openly violate the laws of physics and the laws of nature, um, particularly as flippantly as he does, I think that's the really the big thing. Because you have to remember that at that time frame in, 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 uh, and even afterwards, super righteous rabbis and whatnot could do miracles. But they almost always did them in a much more, um, there's more like a request and answer format. Or, or God would step in and do the miracle in order to validate what this particular sage had said or something like right, that. Right, right. Sure. But, but oftentimes they would, they would say, they would almost like they would like, um, if, if I am correct, this will happen. Yeah. Or yeah. they'll call upon God and this will happen. And, or they'd ask God to do something and it would happen immediately. Sort of like Joshua was stopping the sun and the moon, you know, in the... In, Elijah. In, 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 yeah, yeah. But with, this, is a, with, this is unusual because Yeshua actually speaks directly to the object. Joshua does that also, which is actually kind of an interesting thing because the two names are very similar in Hebrew. Um, and Joshua is the name of the Messianic character. But Yeshua's action is pretty significant, especially even for that time, which is already an era of miracles. You're right. Coney the Circle Maker is the only one that stepped up and demanded. But even he does, he's demanding God to do it on his behalf. He's not making it rain. Yeshua seems to step into this, into the, wakes up, walks in the middle of this boat, and tells, yeah, the, tells the elements to stop. To stop. Like right. I said, exactly right. Joshua is one of the only characters in all of the Tanakh that does anything even That's remotely exactly similar. Right. All right, I'm convinced Yeshua is God. There it is. <laughs> Yeah, David McDonald along that point quotes Job 9.8 and says he alone referring to God spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea (laughs) bam so when you're doing these uh, quotes from these uh, remote folks you need to use only their first name lest there be some Canadian thing that causes them to get in trouble (laughs) he he doesn't live in a Democratic Republic, like we do. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, David. The one thing, just a lot since we're on this t- topic, I think it's, it's really well. No, just the oh, topic of like the demonstration of power. It's it's fascinating to see like how much authority and confidence Yeshua consistently demonstrates. Mm-hmm. Like he is just an absolute fearless character. I mean, most of the time you just never think of that depicted like this super macho guy there was this fascinating blog post just about how basically like it's it's funny how so few men attend church nowadays like there's just not a lot of masculine representation in church but then you have this character like if you really look to jesus objectively he is like the like a total like man's man just like walking into any situation absolutely fearless and uh, you just see so many times. I mean, like the authority that he speaks to, like the demons and stuff like that. I is, do like, think so it helps that he's God, really. Well, I mean, it definitely you know? helps, yeah. but uh, or that he and the Father are one. I think that helps too. Yeah, you know, I feel the same way with a big knife or a gun. <laughs> and if God's your gun, there it is. But I would it. He is amazingly no nonsense. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about uh, the fringes. We've got the woman with the discharge of blood. I'm at the top of page 24 in your study guide, Matthew 9, 20. Prospetta is the, the Greek word uh, for the corner or the fringe, and that is exactly the same word that the Septuagint uses in Numbers 15, where we get our command 
to wear the fringes or the tzitzit. It's the same word. So I was saying last week, the Septuagint becomes our Rosetta Stone to help us to understand what the apostolic scriptures are telling us in the wording of the Tanakh. It's really important. Is the, the Hebrew word in the Septuagint tzitzit or kanaf? It is tzitzit in Numbers 15. Okay. It's kanaf when you get into Psalm 84 um, and Malachi 4. Yeah. It's kanaf. It's corner. Right? And where does the tzitzit get tied? On the corner. Right. right? So, so but the, the beauty of it is that um, prospetta is tzitzit. Mm-hmm. It's the fringe. So, it's uh, to me, it's very cool. So, what healed the woman? The faith. The faith. Faith. And touching and touching uh, the fringe of the mat. Of Why the did mat. she touch the fringe? Because she believed it would heal her. Because she sure. believed it would heal her. Exactly right. And why did she know that it would heal her? Oh. Through faith. Through faith in. Yeshua. Because. He was the son of God. And she knew that. The piece you're leaving out is the scripture. Sight of righteousness will arise with healing in his canal. In his canal. That's exactly right. So she knew the scripture. She believed, there's the faith. And the faith caused her to reach out and touch that corner, and she was healed. And the rest of the she may have gotten, she could have been reprimanded for that oh, because of her state. Without question, yeah. Well, even that, not just that, I mean. There's a lot on top of the fact that she has this issue. Literally, we have also the situation that, like, she's a woman, he's a man. There's all sorts of rules about yeah, men have been touching in, yeah. in Judaism sure. as well. Yeah. And the yeah. fact that he was a holy man made it even more escalated. I mean, later on, we get this, or actually, it was last week. We got the story of the woman who's hanging out in uh, with this. Oh yeah, watching his tears and all yeah. with her tears and whatnot. And her and, hair. And the the Pharisee that's with him is like. Does he know who she is? If he knew, he would he let he... her? Would he let her do? So that? it's what she does is got some chutzpah. Really. Well, you're exactly right. She has chutzpah, and she's afraid. But what does she have to lose? Exactly. Right, and that and that's kind of you know, that's a lot of times that's where our faith can really change our life is when we've exhausted our own. In her case, money and strength. Time and, to yeah. hold you. And she's desperate. Yeah. She's like, I've tried everything. Nothing's worked. I might get reprimanded here, but who cares? Because I have nothing to yeah. lose. Right? So, you know, there's a question. Okay. Before your question, just let me say, couldn't she be the same one that was forgiven, caught in the act of adultery? This woman, um, we don't we don't know we don't see that connection, but she could be the very one that was about to be stoned. And Yeshua said, "Whoever has in sin, throw the first." Talking about the woman that was possible, but chronologically, that would be after this. Yeah, but you know, if you look at it, if that was her, she had a lot to be thankful for. You're talking about the woman who was wiping his feet. 
Oh, right, yes. No, but, yeah, but not the woman who's with the issue of blood. Yeah. She, no, they're not she, the woman with the issue of blood. They're about the woman who got caught. Right. Oh, right. John chapter 8. Yeah, that's later on. I don't think it's the same woman, but it's possible. I want to bring up, there was a an attitude. Am I going to go through that in the next page? There was an attitude of faith. And what was the other attitude? Fear. It was fear. Exactly. Yeah. So if it was fear, then the question is, did this woman have fear? Of course. She was afraid. It says she was very concerned. She was afraid. She fell down at his feet, begging for his forgiveness. But I thought fear was the antithesis of faith. How do they both work here? God bless you. And one day, back your head's going to go. <laughs> How's it work? Can they have faith? How can she have faith and fear at the same time? And how them work? The fear did not work for the disciples in the boat. Why are you afraid? Just have faith. So they seem to be opposites. How are they not opposites here? Fear of God. Talk to me. That was a great, great statement. What does it mean? I was thinking that uh, that she was afraid that while she that it may because of the God's Torah it may cause her Torah and problems with the Torah with and he, God and Yeshua is representation is a representation of the living Torah. Okay. Give me some more. You're very close. Of whom was she afraid? Of uh, the Messiah? I don't think so. No, uh, of whom did she have faith? The Messiah. The Messiah. The, the Messiah. Of whom was she afraid? Who was going to get her in trouble? Jesus. The people. The people. The people would get her in trouble, not the Torah. Or was she afraid that it would be reconciled against her? At the secret junction. Possibly. But to Greg's point, I don't think so. I think she had faith this man could heal her, and she was afraid when she was found out that she'd get in trouble. But she would get in trouble from men. I don't think from God. Could be wrong. All right. Sir? Thank you. Um, I, I think it's another example, too, where. Uh, we have we have an understanding. We we too often equate faith with the head knowledge. Yeah, but not a doing. Yeah, as James tells us that faith without works is. She could she could have believed that by touching, that she would be healed. And if she stayed in the background and never touched, mm-hmm. she'd, she'd still be innocent. She'd still be right. So, faith, it is integrally uh, is made up integrally of not only the knowledge but the action yes. associated with it. Has to be has to have the action to Agreed. be true faith. Agreed. And and this is another excellent example of that. Sure. Show me your faith 
With no eyes. Mm -hmm. Good. Outstanding. My question was just about the word power. Is this kind of an as in another power went out for yeah, me? Yeah, power went out virtue, for me. depending on your yeah, you know. like what? That's just an interesting word um, because like Dunamis? well, because like I guess I was thinking all along like Yeshua possessed some different kind of spirit, you know, similar to what we've seen with like Joshua and Caleb or something like that, something that made. That that would, he was special in in a certain way, and so. But then it's like it's not the word spirit that kind of left. It's like this word power, and so it's just I don't know. I, I just didn't know if you knew more about what could be meant, like by that. I have some great ideas, just as long as you don't take them as gospel. Uh, I think the word there, check me, is dunamis. Is it yeah, dunamis? it is. Yeah, which is where we get our word dynamite. It truly is a power that is uncontrollable, okay? okay? Extraordinary. He knew that power had gone out from him. Power to do what? To heal. Power to heal. He knew that. What I find amazing in this story is not that she was healed, but that she was healed without, quote-unquote, him knowing. And I think that's where the connection of faith comes in and the action that she took. What healed Jairus' daughter? Faith. His faith. faith. And Yeshua is simply the vehicle by which God used to motivate that faith to action. She touches his corner. And, you know, the, 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 the disciples are like, you know, who touched you? Are you kidding? In a crowd like this? Grand Central Station? All kinds of people touch you. How can we possibly know? No, no, no. Somebody touched me in a special way, and power went out from me. I think he's just a conduit of God's power, and out it went. The, the way, yes. This is just the way I think about mm -hmm. it. Um, again, also not gospel. Yeah. Um, The power, the way I think about the power, it's it's the creative power of God. Because if you think about healing, all healing could be described as God creating or recreating in 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 the case of someone who's been injured, you know, whatever. It's the creative power of God that makes her whole right. when she takes that action of faith. So that's, that's kind of the way I think about it. It's a, cre it's a creative power. Okay. Well, like, it is the same word, too, used in Luke 9 to say like that he gave them power to go out, cast out demons, and cure diseases, which is really cool. Exactly. Fred Frederick has something to say. Caleb? Uh, the the, the uh, idea I had earlier about the uh, daughter and the woman was yes. that she was... Uh, she she, she bled. Indefinite pronoun reference. She, the well, the daughter uh, was uh, was twelve years old, and okay. the woman has bled for twelve years. And I was just thinking, how is there some kind of link between these two somehow? Like, I mean, it, it's just a theory, right? Um, I was just thinking, like, if if uh, this woman, uh, now remember, just an idea. If this woman conceived this daughter, and the, and this woman was bleeding for these 12 years but you know and the daughter was adopted to um 
Jairus, if that's Yaris. his name, Yaris, and the daughter, you know, was 12 years old, and this woman was bleeding for 12 years. So I just think if that was, a, if that was in, in, in way some link, but like I said before, it's just a theory. Yeah. But that's just an idea that It's I certainly, a, there's certainly a connection there with the 12. Absolutely. Definitely. Forget the whole adoption thing for a second. Mm-hmm. If this woman has been bleeding since she gave birth, and it's been 12 years, it's just like Yaris' daughter in age, no question about it. I, I think we're meant to connect them all together, and I like the best answer so far, is that in both cases, death and nida are two types of uncleanness that are really, really over the top. They're right up near there with leprosy, right? And because of that, Yeshua is not just healing something. He's healing day-to-day stuff. Here's a guy who's been born blind. He gives him his sight. Yeah, that's over the top. I've never seen anything like that. Here's this guy. He's been lame from birth. Now he's walking around and dancing. Okay, that's over the top. I'm not blind. I can walk. Where's the day-to-day for me? Give me something that hits me at home. People die. When you get to be my age, a lot of your friends start to die. And if you're not, if your friends aren't dying, your parents are passing away. And you start coming into contact more with death than ever before. Same thing with the Nida thing. You get married, and it's a fact of life, just like death. I, I think these two stories come together in a way that hits really close to home. And the idea that he is giving these 12 disciples the opportunity to cast out and to fix these kind of day-to-day issues is extraordinary. We gotta pick up the pace, guys, because I'm running out of time. And yes, Mr. I love the maroon shirt. Of fear in chapter fifty when Yeshua has heard. Chapter fifty. Not chapter fifty. Okay. Verse Luke Luke eight Luke eight verse fifty. Yes. Um, After he has been told that Jairus is his daughter died, why does he say, "Do not be afraid"? What does Jairus have to fear? Again, I think that the two are antithetical. You can either fear what is going to happen in your life, or you can have faith that God is king, God is in charge, and it's one or the other. Perfect love casts out all fear. And if you love God, then there is no fear. And the power to be a man becomes available. Because we can confront sin, we can confront death, we can confront these sicknesses of everyday life. It's one or the other. That's why... I was surprised that the woman was afraid, but it wasn't that kind of fear. She wasn't afraid of God. She wasn't afraid of that kind of thing. She was afraid of what men might do to her because she broke the rules and touched the guy. Does that make sense? Different than fearing that your daughter's dead and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't fear that your daughter's dead and be overwhelmed with that fear of living without your daughter. And at the same time, have faith that God can heal her. It 
The two cannot coexist. I think that's where he was coming from. Don't be afraid. Just believe. It was exactly what he said to the disciples in the boat. I got your boat. I got your boat. Right? Why, why are you afraid? I'm in the boat with you. I got you, I got you, and then I got you. I'll take you first. Well, just to follow up on something you said. Another job too. <laughs> the when it comes to as I think we talked about this I think it was maybe last week or the week before, but when it comes to alleviating human suffering, there's very few rules that apply. And this is an this is kind of illustrating right. that. Right? It's an overarching right. gotta do it kind of thing. Right. Yeah, good, good. All right, you you outrank him. So um, the not fearing God one. is not fearing God, but fearing yeah. physical things like death, uh, loss of others, and uh, on honor and uh, physical things that relate to you. But I think that's exactly what I'm talking about, juxtaposed with faith in God. If you're all worried about whether or not I mean, you're, you're, you're still young, but if you're worried about losing your job because you will not work on the Sabbath, you will not work on the Yom Tov and so forth, then where's the faith? If God wants you to do it, he'll work it out. Yeah, you may not be working at that job, or the heart of your boss may get changed. Right? You see the difference? Cool. All right, Squirt, what you got? I'm going to put a tail on that faith part. When Mia's daughter was healed, how were they having faith that she would be healed? They were busy laughing at him. Mm. Say that again. When Mia's daughter was healed, yeah. he said that their faith would heal her, but... They His faith. Yaris's faith. But they were busy laughing at him. Because he said that she was only sleeping. Not yet. But Iris wasn't laughing. I bet he was stuck right on Yeshua and is going to walk in and he's doing everything he can to believe. Who was it? Was it this week? I believe. Heal my unbelief. That's next week, right? Coming off the mountain. Sorry. Next week. In the head. Yeah, next week. You'll love it. It's great. And the people, <laughs> the people that were laughing, what happened to them? They were he sent them shock. out. He told them you they can't have to, stay here. They have to leave. Right? So what happened in his hometown? Could he do miracles? He tried to. Why couldn't he? Because his own people doubted him. They doubted, meaning they didn't have faith. There it is. Yeah, there it is. So, as Mr. Garner said, he put out the ones who were laughing. So the only people that are left are the mom and dad who had faith. The mother and father and uh, Jesus have, well, actually, wait, no, not Jesus. I mean, he is, he, he has the power, but the mother and father had the faith. Exactly. Just um, to comment. Oh. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll this go was ahead. from uh, Mr. Murphy, I mean, Frederick. Um, <laughs> he's, he says uh, that many, in fact, did touch Yeshua's garments in uh, Mark six fifty six, and then again in Matthew fourteen fifty thirty six. Um, so she wasn't necessarily unique in this understanding. A lot of people knew 
that verse that we've been talking about about healing in his yeah. wings. So next next week's and, class, and we're going to talk about that. Well, it's and it's also described as power leaving at that point yeah. as well. Yeah. So that's, that's really Everybody wanted to touch. Yeah. Quick, I got one minute, and then I got to close. One up. minute. Um, I want to go back to fear. Fear is very is a natural thing. We all have it, and we all have to conquer it. We go back to the historical points in the Tanakh and the Torah. We can see all the biblical figures all fearing. But, you know, we can go back to and, and realize Elijah conquers and defeats all these prophets of Baal and then runs for his life when this woman wants to kill him. And But, you know, we got to go back to David. Here we have David who's going to go fight. Not because Goliath. Yeah. Now, he, you know, everybody else is fearful of fighting Goliath. But David looks back at the, his, his life and he realizes, you know, this same... God, who helped me fight the lion and the bear, will give me victory over you. So basically, we all going to fear something. It's all natural. But we need to remember, this is what's good about having testimony, is hearing how God is working in your life, Joshua. How he's working in your life. And how God has conquered fears in your life. And how God has worked in your life. And, how he, and looking at all that and realizing, well, if I go through that same ordeal in my life, if God deliver, great. He's going to deliver you. Amen. Amen. And that's how we can congregate. No, so knowing the truth, the truth will set you free. Amen. Free from what? From fear. That's good. Yeah. All right. I got to move to my final point. I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 26. We have the woman, non Jew, who comes to the master and. I guess this is in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. She wants her daughter, I think, to be healed. The master won't even give her the time of day. How do you reconcile that? With the Irish's daughter? Or with the woman that was bleeding? What's the difference here? Well, it's Gentile. She's a non-Jew. Right. Why does he treat her like that? And what causes him to change his mind? It's not a trick question. Right there. Yeah. He, came for, he came for Israel. He came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Boom! That's it. What makes him change his mind? That she gets that. She gets that, and further, I think, she knows her place. Which I tried to bring out last week, that as non-Jews, we have not been chosen. Salvation is from the Jews. It is not from us. He is the Messiah of the Jews, not the Gentiles. There is no salvation for us unless we join ourselves to Israel. If you can't deal with that, sorry. To think of it another way, I think about like, um, if you're born in this country, you have inherent rights. They're yours because you were an American automatically. 
It sounds like you want to make America great again. If you move to this country, it'll be from another country. Move to this country from another country, and you do it legally the right way. Yes. You have to work pretty hard. They finally give you your citizenship. That point. Well, you earned it. They don't give have, it. To you've you. earned it. You've earned it. Well, but no, that's my point though. You've earned it. But even though you earned it, you don't deserve it. It is a choice by the people who run that country, this country, to grant you citizenship because you did X, Y, and Z like we asked you to. But if you don't do that, we're not giving it to you. And if you do do that, we're still being nice enough to give it to you. In other words, an immigrant here, and this is oftentimes true, immigrants who work for their citizenship have an enormous amount of respect for what they have, way more so than an American who's born here. They get that the right to vote is a big deal because they had to work hard for it. And, there, and there's a certain degree, I think, of humility that says, I didn't, I didn't deserve this and you're grateful. naturally. You're grateful to have it. So I think that that's sort of the status for those of us who are not Jewish. Not so much to say that, like, I mean, to your point last week, that's what to say we're like second-class citizens, that you don't have the rights, or that God doesn't love you as much. But the idea that, like, we don't deserve to be here. We're only here because God, in his infinite grace and mercy decided to give us an opportunity to be part of his people. Amen. So we don't have any right to be arrogant. We don't have any right to take for granted. Nor do we have any right to step in front of the Jew. Or to tell them, you know, that we know better than them. I mean, or God you, may know better than them. You can't have your capital in Jerusalem. It has to be Tel Aviv. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. And I also think this is the classic case of, like being blessed because Israel is blessed. Uh -huh. You know, so like those who bless you will also be blessed. She clearly blesses Israel by recognizing the the position and of course recognizing the land that she's living in and its king and master. And so by blessing Israel, like she in turn is blessed. So she's recognizing like sort of that chain nice. reaction yes. that, that takes place yes. that we know from the Torah. Good. I like it. Uh, follow up? I'm, I'm trying sorry. to move on. I know. Go this ahead. is this is kind of interesting. So also her location is significant. She's they're in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are significant and important because the city of Tyre was the Paris of the Middle East back during the time of the kings. Okay? Yeah. yeah. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and obliterates it because for various reasons. The point is though, God prophesies about this in Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, God calls the king of Tyre. And he compares him to what we later would kind of mistakenly translate Lucifer. Okay, so he compares him to this angel who says, I am beautiful and amazing and I will ascend to heaven. And God says, I'm going to wipe you out and there's nothing left. Right. So what's important is Tyre and Sidon are punished grievously because of arrogance. And this woman exhibits an immense amount of humility. And that, I believe, is why ultimately her daughter was healed. Amen. Frederick says Quickly. she was bold like uh, the other many who tried the crowd approach to try well who tried to touch uh, him and then she wasn't cowering about being a Gentile she chased him down and made a spectacle of herself while keeping on striving for his attention and her actions matches the Jewish approaches we've talked about with the other healings very bold approach to Yeshua but Frederick is talking about her actions, and I'm talking about Yeshua's response. And Yeshua's response is, he wouldn't even talk to her, because she was a Gentile. She was a non-Jew. That's the term we're going to use. Non-Jew. Non-Jew. Okay.
handout for tonight. Everybody got it? If you print it out, do you have it? Lesson four. Lesson four handout? Okay. Got it. You don't have it? You don't have it. So you didn't download the latest thing, huh? I printed three. So share one or two of them and pass them around to whoever else doesn't have them. You got them? So it's available online. It is the very last two pages of the handout every single week. The review? Yes. This should be on Roman numeral page 9. So we've reviewed all the four gospel accounts now of the birth of the Master. And we saw the beginning of his life. Matthew gives us the lineage of the king. Luke gives us the uh, lineage of uh, the son of man. Over time, we read about <coughs> Zechariah and Elizabeth. We even have the mystical introduction of the divine one into the world. So, in the second chapter of Matthew, we get the Magi showing up. If you are looking at the, the uh, Greek there, you should recognize clearly that they are not dealing with a brephe, a newborn. They're dealing with a paideon, a child, because in fact, the manger scene that we see everywhere and on the flannel graph, which shows the Magi there in the manger, is a bunch of hooey. The Magi showed up when he was two or three years old. So, we've got the Bethlehem manger, we've got the shepherds who were told about the wonderful gift of God. Uh, they worship him. We've got the Magi later on, several years later, that are bringing gifts and uh, worshiping him. We've got the escape to Egypt. We've got the, uh, the whole return to Nazareth. And yet, Today, we hang socks on fireplaces. We have evergreen trees that are cut and standing in our homes. We have mistletoe and eggnog abundant. Who's we? We purchase gifts for family members, and we send greeting cards. Why do we do that? It is the question. It should be obvious even now that this is not a biblical response to the birth of the Master. So I'm not trying to say that doing that is wrong. I'm just trying to figure out why are we celebrating Christmas? Or why do our family members celebrate Christmas? Why celebrate the birth of the Messiah? What would be one good reason to celebrate the birth of the Messiah? Not a trick question. Honor. To honor him. Not alone. To remember him. The Jews actually have a biblical response to remembering someone. What is that called? Yartzeit. The Yartzeit. Does it remember their birth? Yeah. It remembers their death. They light a candle all day long. They put pictures out. It remembers their life. It remembers their life on the anniversary of their death. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. And in fact, the very first festival, Unleavened Bread, is the yard site of the Master. And we are commanded to remember it every single year. 
we're remembering his life on the anniversary of his death, which was Passover. So I looked uh, and gave you a couple of things here on birthdays. I tried to find any birthdays I could find in the scripture. And it's, it's not a good list. It really isn't. I'm pretty sure we, uh, there are other births that we missed. So. Those births, these are the ones that are celebrating the birthdays. Correct. Birthdays. Yeah. yeah, we're celebrating birthdays here. I've got uh, Herod's. Uh, in Mark 6 and Matthew 14, in Daniel 5, uh, Belshazzar, um, say to say that it was his birthday. All the heathens. Yeah, they are all and, and, yeah, and Herod is the, the head of the saint on a platter. That's exactly right. Pharaoh's birthday. Nice gift. So we don't have anything good happening on the birthdays. So it makes me question what we're doing. So I've got a couple of things. Um, given the history of the normal celebration of Christmas in a believer's homes, I've got a list there of some things to consider. Um, why are we celebrating his birth when it's his death that brings redemption? Where do we get these customs for this holiday? We just read through the scriptures. They're not there. It is pretty interesting that if you just Google what's the origins of Christmas, even the pagans know that the origins of Christmas are not biblical. What does it teach our children when we celebrate Christmas the way the world does? And it, also, it all stems back to the worship of the sun. Sure. So what are we teaching our kids? And what's the focus on material possessions and getting gifts and, and all of that teaching our kids? We all got the wrong message when we received presents on Christmas morning. We all got the wrong message. Yeah. So, but, but so the question would the be then, the so, <laughs> so the question now is, what do we do about that? But technically, and, and I think if we're not going to celebrate, because I don't think there's any problem with celebrating the birth of Messiah. I don't think there's any problem with that at all. In fact, if you want a great teaching, go into the Menatura podcast and listen to the uh, teaching that Greg did on... Uh, on the, the mathematical determination of when John the Baptist, I beg your pardon, John the Baptizer, Baptizer. was probably conceived and born, and when the Master was probably conceived and born, and you'll find that they actually probably line up with the festivals of Israel. Right. I'm going to check that out. And the Master was most probably born on Sukkot. Right. The Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, John says he tabernacled among us. And I think, as Greg points out in his teaching, if he was born on the first day of Tabernacles, when was he circumcised? On the eighth day. On the eighth day. Shemini Yatzera. That's actually a holiday. Anyway, it seems that we could, uh, we could do better than the way, the, the way it's come down. We're going to be talking over the next few weeks about this timeline right after the Master's death, the destruction of the Temple, the Roman influence, and where all of these things come from. The fact that as late as here, 500 in the Common Era, we actually still had people that were keeping the Sabbath and were believers in Yeshua. We'll be reading about the Sabbath keepers of Transylvania. We're actually going to read about what the Catholic Church did to these people. 
the quarter decimal controversy about having Passover or Easter on the 14th. We're going to talk about that. Our faith and the practice thereof was hijacked. Most people will tell you Christianity and Judaism are two different faiths. They are. <laughs> the Messiah of Israel is the one in whom we believe. The faith, the faith that he practiced, the halakha that he was agreeing with or arguing against was Jewish. And the faith practice has been hijacked. So, I want to make it clear. If you want to celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December, you paddle your own canoe. It's not a sin. There's nothing wrong with it. I just question what's right with it and what kind of message does it send. And as dads, or future dads, what will we be teaching our children if we continue that practice that's been hijacked. Final comments from anybody who wants to talk. you got 30 seconds. I think it's very cool that the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, is actually the only one of the two that will be on the 25th that is actually biblical. That's right. Yeshua is specifically in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah. And right. so that, that's a really cool point. But 25th it's just Kislev. Right, but, but it happens awesome to be on the 25th of December this year. Well, this, this, year, sure. this year, correct. Right. But it, yeah, but maybe January 6th, which is Christmas Day in the Orthodox Christian Church, the Russian Orthodox Church celebrates Christmas on January 6th. I mean, I think any day other than the 25th of December, the Feast of Samhain would probably be a better thing, but I get it. Yeah. Feast of Dedication is around that time. Nice. Right, which is, which cool. is what Jews in America have done, grabbed on and paralleled Hanukkah with Christmas, which is ridiculous, but it works. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, because they're so closely tied in our country specifically, it's, it's helpful to just kind of ask the question, like, can you trace the origins of each of those back? And when you look at, like, when we try to teach our kids about Hanukkah, it's actually very easy. Oh, There's yeah. a lot of information about sure. it. And, of course, as I said, it's in the Bible. But then, like, you try to trace back the origins of Christmas, and it's like, it was once illegal in our country. Like, some of the church fathers, like, were preaching against it. Sure. I mean, like, the, it, because of the paganism. Right. So it's, it's really, it's you, a problem you kind of have to time. avoid that yeah. entirely. If you, yeah. But it doesn't mean that you can't celebrate the birth of the Messiah of Israel. You can do that whenever you want. Now, a great time to do that might be what might be his biblical birth. The Feast of Tabernacles. You're already doing Sukkot. Do a birthday cake. Whatever you want. But if you want to celebrate it three months late, have fun. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you might want to celebrate his birth, too. So, comments. Other comments? I am eight minutes over. But you guys were eight minutes late. So it's okay. Not over. So technically, we're making up for the eight minutes late. Doing the best I can, man. Yeah. All right? Good, good, good. Uh, Mr. Martin, mm -hmm. would you be so kind as to close us out? Gentlemen, good discussion. I appreciate your passion. Keep it up. By the way, I have readjusted the reading schedule in order to give you a break. Thank you. The next lesson is dramatically shorter and should you continue to arrive on time and be zealous with your comments, I may actually continue to
to shorten your reading. So this will be a nine-year study at the Apostolic Writings, but we're gonna, it'll be great. By the way, I point out that I had a very good time studying this past week's mm -hmm. lesson with my wife, so we had a little, you know, study together. I'm very interested in the female comments, which I've not been getting on the Men of Torah blog. Scott, close this out, sir. We thank you, on our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, that you have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. I toil, we toil, and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days, but as for us, we will trust in you. Amen. Thank you, man.